God damn it, really? Hey, everybody, welcome to I'm Okay, You're Okay, I'm Not Okay, You're Not Okay. With me, Bob Schneider, and your other host, Clint Wells. You're welcome. Welcome to I'm Okay, You're Okay, I'm Not Okay, You're Not Okay. It's another lovely day in the neighborhood, as Mr. Rogers used to say quite often. While he was taking off his shoes, no less. He was changing shoes. It was always a big symbol, and he was taking off the one, I guess, kind of more business cardigan and putting on more of the party cardigan. Because Here's my deal. The first time I'm in my apartment or whatever apartment my parents were renting at the time, and I'm watching this strange old man start undressing in front of me and talking to me, I didn't know him. Dude, I was on high alert, son. High alert. Like stranger danger alert? Stranger danger. This dude's getting undressed, chatting to me like he knows me. Now, after you watch a couple of shows, you realize, oh, this guy's pretty nice. I like this guy. Oh, and he's only taking off his outside shoes because they're covered in shit. Because he's been walking all day in shit. And he doesn't want to get that in his house. So I get it. But man, first time, I was like, uh-uh, who is this? Pediophile. Well, here's my first memory of being a human being. First okay. memory online. And Hold I up. think it really says a lot about me. Hold up. Zip. I'm at my grandparents' house in Montgomery, Alabama, my dad's parents. Now, why am I at their house instead of my dad's trailer? Because daddy was too drunky to look after us. So dad, aye, aye, aye. dad would have a good time no matter what, even if the kids were in town. That's called good parenting. That's where you're you're good to your your parents, which is you. <laughs> he he was, was good to himself. What's funny about him is if you ask him today, he'll say he was a great dad. He's he's a piece of work. So I'm often at my grandparents. Grandparents are old and don't give a shit. They raised my dad. My dad is who he is because he watched my grandfather beat his mom up his whole life. Yikes. And so here's me, three years old, first memory ever. They had just plopped me in front of the TV. Because that was pretty useful. I mean, I think I even did that to my kid a lot. You know, you put him in front I of do something. It to, I, I do it to mine on the rag, dude. It's a tale old as time. Well, uh, yeah. wh- here's what happened to come on that TV. A movie called A Nightmare on Elm Street. Yikes. I don't know what A Nightmare on Elm Street is. I'm three. I don't know. It ain't, it ain't Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. It ain't, it ain't Mr. Rogers' Changing Cardigans. So I'm sitting there and I'm like, well, this movie's interesting. Okay. All right. I'm identifying. There's Johnny Depp. And let's get that age again. Three. Yikes. So I'm doing all the things kids do. I'm like, that's the boy. That's the girl. The boy kisses the girl. Boy likes girl. Okay. They want to go. Got, you got your little notebook. You're taking. <laughs> exactly. Dude. I'm taking down. copious notes. Yeah. yeah I'm taking. Yeah, I'm, and what I'm actually doing is building neuron pathways that I will yeah. now live in with my entire life. Right. These are un. You're building the highway that you will drive your mind's car down for the rest of your life now these are kids that are just getting out of school and their boyfriends and girlfriends all these very clear oblock elements in my worldview one of them being johnny depp one was johnny depp's first feature film i didn't know that didn't know who johnny depp was they go to a friend's house and it's clear that they're having a good time at this friend's house because the mommy and daddy aren't there so i'm like yeah you can party without your parents fuck yeah i'm getting i'm getting the juice of all this this one couple are naked and they're hugging that's all I know. They're hugging naked. And about this point is when I start to... I'm like looking behind me. There's My grandparents had these two lazy boys that was like his and hers. I'm like looking back. No, they're not there. 
I'm looking for any adult anywhere because I see two naked adults hugging each other and rolling around on a bed. And I'm right. like, this this seems like I shouldn't be watching this. But no adults to be found. Okay. Let's let it ride. So I'm I'm letting By it ride. By the way, let's get a location reading. Let's get a let's get a yep. location uh reading right now. Are we in New York City? Are we in Chicago, Illinois? Are we in Vermont? Are we in Seattle? Are we in Portland? Let's get a geographical location. Everywhere you named is better. I was in a living room on shag carpet in Montgomery, Alabama. Montgomery, Alabama. Sitting in front of a, what would then probably a 45 inch TV, but was a massive TV for the time. On the wall are two guns, one with my dad's name and one with my uncle's name, Terry and Randy. I guess it was their guns when they were boys, just guns. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So the naked adults are rolling around, and I don't know why they're naked and rolling around and hugging each other a lot. That's, but slip. Maybe they had a slip and slide. Maybe they're playing a fun game that I don't know about yet. Maybe I don't they're know. getting ready to take a bath. <laughs> the possi- Maybe it's bath time. The possibilities in my three-year-old brain were endless yeah. other than well, sex. When you're, well, when you're three, I wouldn't say they're endless. There's about five possibilities. One of them's bath time. <laughs> the other four are kind of made up three-year-old shit that doesn't really exist. Well, so then the adults get tired of rolling around and hugging each other, and they looked tired. They're out of breath. I thought that right. must be a tiring game. Yeah. And then the woman goes to sleep and when she wakes up, a demon from hell with a beclawed right hand who has been burned beyond recognition begins to slice and dice her up. She's floating around the room. Blood is gushing out of her abdomen like a fucking fire hose. She's screaming. He's screaming. Both still naked except I don't know, 100,000 gallons of blood just exploded out of her. This is little old me. Looking around again, I'm like, does anyone love me? Is anyone going to help me understand? And they didn't. Get your kicks on Route 666 (laughs) that you just created in your little old Clint Wells brain. That's my first memory of being alive. Yeah, that was your first major thoroughfare that you have to ride through every day now. Exactly. The chalk outlines are there. Yeah, until you're hopefully long in the far distant future death. (laughs) (laughs) Now, you can, like with all roadways, you can kind of go in and you can fix up that road a little bit. You can clear the debris. But dude, it's so much work. It's so much work to fix that major highway in your brain. Like, are you... And nobody's... I mean, we're talking ayahuasca. We're talking months of ayahuasca ceremonies. We're talking hundreds of thousands of dollars in therapy. Uh, you know, we're talking 12 day, no verbal communication. Yeah. Silent retreats and caves. Silent retreats. <laughs> like, there, it's going to take so much work. And nobody has time or energy or no. money to do that. No. So, what you're going to do is you're just going to drive down that sketchy Nightmare on Elm Street highway every day forever well and what i continue to do throughout my life is i continue to look at the horrors of the world and i feel like i'm always kind of looking around like does anyone else see this goddamn shit (laughs) does anyone else see this or care nobody's in the room except for clint wells and no one's there dude no one is there and then when you when you try to tell other people about it they're like yeah exactly what 
What are you talking about, man? Life's good. <laughs> Just pour some booze on it. Pour some porn on it. Pour some Marvel Cinematic Universe on it. Life's good. Voting matters. Your politicians care about you and care about your children. What's the problem, Clint? Why are you so grumpy? Pour some Netflix on it. Pour some... Candy Crush? Uh, pour some Coke Zero. Try it. Dude, <laughs> do you remember the Coke Zero commercials that came out like a couple years ago? You got to try it. Like it was just like Coke Zero. You got to try it. It was like a weird voice. Yeah. I remember put the lime in the Coke, you nut. No, this was like, but this is like literally about a year or a year and a half ago. You got to try it. <laughs> it seems cancelable now. <laughs> the world is just so different. But the thing is, it's cancelable if I do it. If an actual person that sounds like that does it, it's fine. But this is why friendships matter and your relationships matter. Is because I'm that room isn't empty. My friends are in it. My friends can go. Friends can go on the dark highway with me as far as they can go. They do eventually all have to hop off. We're like hobos hanging on to the. We're like the Lost Boys when they're hanging under those train tracks, and then they eventually just fall into the fog. But then luckily they're all vampires, so they just fly away into a cave. But that's what it feels like. That scene in The Lost Boys when they're seeing how long they can hang on under the train. You remember that scene? Kiefer Sutherland? I feel like I'm remembering it now that you're telling me it. It's a big rite of passage for the whatever the fuck the guy's name. Anyway, it doesn't matter. I was watching I think his name was Don Dickhead. <laughs> his name was Don Dickhead, actually. You do remember. Yeah. I was watching the George it's Carlin. It's all starting to come back. Did you see the George Carlin documentary yet on HBO? I haven't watched it yet, but I'm going to watch it. He's it good? It's pretty good. If you watch the Gary Shandling one, it's very similar. It's told through his words. Judd Apatow directed Judd, exactly. produced it. And he says at the beginning, he's like, you know, when I started doing my stand-up, people would always ask me, like, why are you so mad? And he would say, I think what you're mistaking for anger is I have a contempt for the horrible choices that all the people in the world around me make. And he says, I feel betrayed. Right. He said he feels betrayed by the world. That's right. how I feel. Yeah. I don't know if you feel that way. It is weird because I've always banged my shin against the world in regards to how dumb so many people seem. And then I'm like, dude, just like part, like I wish there was a part of my brain. There's a all right, there's two, there's the angel side and there's the devil side. Mm -hmm. The devil side is like, dude, yeah, they're dumb. Take advantage. <laughs> That's what people who are rich and who are successful do. They take advantage of dumb people. But then the angel side wants to lift that whole giant percentage of the population out of the muck have them evolve somehow through my teaching save them and then i'll somehow be able to make the world better and that's just as fucked up as the maybe more fucked up than the devil side but <laughs> there's a third side which is this side which is like okay you don't have to be evil and you don't have to try to try this impossible thing that can't be done which is lift everybody out of the muck with your amazing teachings you can just accept the world the way it is and and uh period yeah that's good and also just be a little happier because of that that will that will come forth from it that will bear out well what were you doing today that you said you had a busy morning Anything you can talk about that's interesting? 
Uh, I had a couple things. I, I tried out a new drummer who's going to play with me on Saturday because all of my other drummers weren't available. And a uh, nice guy um, and a great drummer. So that's exciting. And then I have a show that's coming up at the Pershing this week when this podcast comes out. Uh, and the first Wednesday of every month with the Moonlight Trio, which is Kevin Lovejoy on piano, Chris Marsh on drums, and Brandon Temple on drums. Chris Marsh on bass, you mean? What did I say? You said drums. Yeah, uh, Chris Marsh on bass, on stand-up bass, and Brandon Temple on drums. And um, it's amazing. Yeah, great we band. We've done it a couple times now, but last month it finally really kind of all came together. We're playing at this place called The Pershing, which is a private club on the east side in austin uh tickets are expensive but worth it it really is the show that i did last month is one of the best shows i've ever done in my life it's definitely in the top 10 shows i mean i've been playing for i've been playing professionally at for a living for 31 years and in 31 years it's in the top 10 shows i've ever done so it's it's a special one of a kind show. If you want to come see that, I highly recommend it. Uh, you will not be um, disappointed. I normally I'm like, yeah, come see me or don't come see me. I don't give a fuck. But this show is so good. Do you pl- are you playing guitar too, or is it just you singing? Not really. It's mostly me singing. That's cool. There's one or one or two songs I'll pick up the guitar and play a little bit, but it's mainly. Kevin Lovejoy, who's this master pianist, he's he's a jazz pianist, but he's he's really a genius. He's like Thelonious Monk or one of these guys who he, he's really as good as anybody I've ever been around on any instrument. He just happens to play piano. So you've got him. Then you've got Brandon Temple, who's arguably the best drummer I've ever played with, one of the best drummers I've ever seen especially in that jazz you know in that jazz genre which is what we do so we'll take a song like metal and steel or 40 dogs or one of these songs that you've heard a bunch of times and we'll do it in a jazz way and it's just it really is fun and and I of course I do a lot of kidding around on stage so it's fun it's a fun show but more than that it's really a unique and really special uh, thing. So I'm, I'm excited. So we were trying to put together which songs we're going to do for that uh, show, which is uh, this Wednesday after the podcast comes out. Awesome. And then every and then, every Wednesday in the, of June? No, every, the first Wednesday of the month. Ah, gotcha. Until we decide to stop doing it or, if, uh, you know, until it gets too crazy where too many people are trying to get in. Yeah, that sounds fun. I wish I lived in town so I could see it. I've played with all those guys with you and I've loved all of it. Chris Marsh plays with Eric Johnson and a bunch of jazz trio gigs around town. All characters too. All, the, all, all of those dudes are characters. Dude, they're <laughs> such characters. They're <laughs> giant personalities. Yeah, they are. But it's, I'm telling you, man, that the magic that happened last, that last gig was, I couldn't believe it. Like I was on stage. I was just like, I cannot even believe that I'm part of this. How rehearsed were you guys? Did you guys do a lot of rehearsing? No, we do one rehearsal. We try not to overthink it. Yeah. We try not to over rehearse. We just, we figure out kind of which direction we're going to go in kind of. And then 
let the rest kind of happen because they're all jazz guys and part of part of the magic of part of the magic of music but especially jazz is is finding a unique thing that you've never you've never done before when you when you come up with something you've never heard before on the spot you've done this a lot with me we used to do it all the time. We'd I'd start a song differently or in a different key or with a different feel. All of a sudden, we're doing a song in a way we've never done it before. And when that's working, that is a real magical thing that happens because you're you're hearing it with the audience for the first time, and everybody's feeling that energy and that newness of creation. It's sort of like an atom bomb going off, but in a really chill way well it's thrilling because you feel like creatively you're on the edge of, edge of a cliff that you might fall off and the audience is with you yeah and there's nothing like landing it and then sometimes you fall off and everyone comes with you and that's its own that's its own fun yeah because one good one good thing about music is that when it hits you you're like oh shit this this is pretty good or it sucks yeah you know you're you because i've told people about the first story I did with you where we played multiple songs a night that I'd never heard. And I rehearsed my little penis off for that run that we did it in May of 2011, where I just got all the out, all the records online that were available and learned them. But I didn't know that you had such a deep catalog outside of that. And man, that was fun. That was one of the most fun tours to be on. Let me ask you this. So something's come up in the Metallica world. So there's a few Metallica songs that when they play them now, they just take sections out like a bridge here or like a solo section. They're they're pretty... Unim- I'll tell you what, I don't even really notice them. There's one that's really big. They take out a huge section that's really big, but mo- they made these little decisions and someone wrote in, they were asking why. And it's like, well, because you just get better at songwriting and you look back at some of the work you did and you're like, oh yeah, I didn't need that. Do you ever do that with your stuff? Well, famously on Bullets, I, there's a bridge in Bullets that's on the recording. I haven't played that bridge in 20 years. Never played it. So what's going through your head? You're just like, well, the bridge isn't as good as I thought it was when I put it on the album, so I'm not going to do it. I don't even know why we put it on the album. Because <laughs> you probably thought on, it was good. I mean, we put it on the album because like, uh, I guess this needs a bridge because it doesn't really do anything. Yeah. There's no, it doesn't have like a verse and a chorus. It's just one thing the whole time. So uh, we'll put it in a bridge. Yeah. I'm like, fuck that bridge. You don't need it. Right. Just took you 10 years, 20 years to realize it. No, no. I mean, we, oh, you haven't done it since we, then. We, no, as soon as it was recorded in the studio, we've never done it since then. And famously, Forty Dogs had four verses in the studio, and then we were like, we had to cut one for the single. And as soon as we cut it, I was like, well, let's not put the four verse on the album. Let's put the three verse on the album. Yeah, Dave Matthews has a one of his more popular later songs is called Gray Street. They performed it on the Conan O'Brien late night, whatever the fuck show, and they had to cut a verse for it. They never played that verse again. It's on the recording, but there's something about them having to cut it for the time, opened it up in a way where they were like, oh. And now, 20 years later in this last tour, they've been doing that verse again, and the the nerds out there are real excited. So here's another thing that's come up that I brought up on the podcast that I, I think is interesting. I'm about James Hetfield as a songwriter, blah, blah, blah. He's 35 years into it. When he was in his mid-30s, he made a couple of records called Load and Reload that are very introspective, like really unusually introspective about a lot about his childhood and shit, struggles with drinking. He opened that little window, wrote those 20 or 30 songs, never to go back into those rooms, never has really ever done that again. Now he's 62, 63, and I don't think he'll ever do it again. And there's something about a certain window of time where you're really willing to mine like your interior life at that level 
And then I think at some point when you write those 30 to 50 songs, you maybe feel like I kind of did that. And it was maybe not the most pleasant thing. Do you, do you, do you see that in your writing at all? Well, my first hunch when you told me that story is that that sounds like something. I bet you he wrote those songs right after he got sober. And then you have this thing where you get sober and you're like, you want to regurgitate all, you want to get all this stuff out. And then once you've gotten it all out, you're like, ugh. Right. And then at a certain point, you're like, I don't need to be telling anybody all this bullshit. That's what it seems like. Well, so it's funny that you mentioned the sobriety thing. He famously got sober on a record called Saint Anger, which was a little late, a little later than what I'm talking about. But we found out through that, that's when they made the documentary and they have a therapist and stuff. I'm talking about maybe six years before that. And turns out he did try to get sober in that period, but on his own. And obviously it didn't work. So that makes a ton of sense. Yeah, you write that really raw nerve record. And then you look back and you're like, yeah, that people don't need to see all that. Yeah, I don't know. Writing's a weird thing. Would that have been Lonely Land for you? Like, what would that record be for you? Your like kind of sober record. I mean, Lonely Land came out not came out five years after I was after I got sober, but I wrote a lot of those songs. I I got sober in '95. I don't think I really wrote anything that great for about two years. Now I wrote a lot of songs from '95 to '97. But most of the songs that are on Lonely Land, I probably wrote from 97 to 99. So you'd had a couple of years to mellow into. A lot of people I know that got sober, those first 18 months are pretty intense. Because they almost have to be, right, for you to get well, through it. Well, I, I always wrote sober. So right. some people don't write sober. Some people take drugs and write. And I've never done that. So it wasn't that big of a deal. But just my life was different. And you just have to learn how to do things a little differently. So, yeah, I don't know. That's why I just, I've always heard, like, don't get into a relationship in your first year. It takes you two years to start writing if you're an artist, if you get sober. So, I don't know. I don't know. It seems like there's some validity to those things. I just think what he's writing about now that he's a lot of years beyond all that, he's writing a lot more like observational. When I look at the world, I see this. It's it's not like the, here's what my mom and dad did. And here's what my fucked up inner life is. I think you, as a songwriter for me, I'm just writing about my relationships. So it's either my relationships with the world or with my wife or with my kids or with my society or whatever. And then when you're younger, you've got a lot of testosterone. You want to procreate. You want to fucking inseminate some biatches, get your offspring on the planet. That's a lot of, you're like you're full of a lot of energy. You want to prove yourself to people. So there's a lot of that that goes on, I think, in your 20s, in your 30s. For me, I mean, that's really when I hunkered down and really got to work. I mean, it wasn't about wasting time anymore. But it was also about also being serious, but just, again, I'm writing about the world and what's going on, and, and a lot of that's relationships. But, you know, you're still like, kind of you know you're still got all that testosterone so you're talking about like 
yo, I'm the number one stunner because you want to show up as the alpha male in your songs, you know, to make you attractive to women and all that stuff. And at a certain point, like that starts wearing down. And I think once the testosterone starts going down, like, I mean, I'm, I'm in my late thirties. And when I say late thirties, I mean, the tide has come and it is also then since departed and also come back and then once again departed. So I, I'm, it's when I say late thirties, I'm talking mid fifties. And, um, uh, at this point, my body's putting out so little testosterone <laughs> that like really all I can write about now is just like, Oh look, there's a bench. Oh look, I see a tree. And so the fact that he's just writing observations, it makes perfect sense. Right. Because you don't need a lot of energy for that. You just kind of like, oh, I'm just going to write down what I see and then we'll add a rock beat to it and let's fucking, you know, make a billion dollars. <laughs> it's because yeah. you, you don't you don't have that testosterone. You don't have that need. You know, I don't know. Does he have children and stuff? He's probably been married and has kids. He and has. Stuff. So he has children that are now kind of out of the house. They're all in their like 20. They're like 20 years old now. 19, 20, 21. Right. And. Right. If this isn't confirmed, but it seems as if the marriage is now over. Like they got the kids pushed off, and I think she probably stuck with them through some horrible shit. It's do- it's documented from the documentary eighteen years ago, but now their kids are grown, and I think that was what she may have been hanging on for. Again, I have no insider information about that, but or what he or what he was hanging out for, you know, like well, so uh, he relapsed um, two years ago. After oh, wow. 16, 17 years of public sobriety. So he relapsed. Apparently is back chill again. But that now the new thing is that his life's kind of unraveled. His personal life. So when you've accomplished what a guy like him has accomplished. And then you go to sit down to write. Yeah, you got to just feel kind of out of it. Like, I'm not going to bear my soul. Because it's too much. Too painful. I'm not, gonna, I'm not trying to fuck everybody in the world. That's over. He probably did much of that in the 90s. And yeah, there's a bench. There's the world. It is. It is weird. Like I used to write these songs, like kind of like Damien Rice, where I'm like, "Oh, look at how sad I am." Mm-hmm. But you know, because I was in these turbulent, turbulent relationships that would end, and I would feel pretty sad about them ending. Yeah. And I'm like, I thought it was important to like convey this feeling <laughs> that I was having. And now. I mean, I, I don't necessarily have those feelings, but I also, I do have these feelings about just, you know, utter despair and depression and hopelessness, but I don't, there's not, there's not that weird ego thing where I'm like, think it's important to convey that to anybody. Like even now, when I like listen to those Damien Rice songs, I'm like, dude, dude, I was just lighten the fuck up. Dude. You listen to Blower's Daughter now or Delicate. You're like, are you serious, dude? Dude, I listen to that Elephant song the other day. I'm like, come on. Starts off, this has to stop. <laughs> it starts out. It's just him singing. There's no accompaniment. Oh my gosh. Right. What's it? It's like there's a part. It's like this has to stop right now (laughs) and then eventually over the course of like 45 minutes it gets huge and then at the end it gets real quiet again and i'm like come on dude but like i just would have a really hard time even now doing that but but even like like small change is is kind of a song that does that that's really sweet and mellow you're talking about uh tom waits no no my my song small dreams oh small dreams 
Small Change is a Tom Waits song, though, right? Yeah, yeah. But even Small Dreams, I'm not like telling you how I feel necessarily. It's just about kind of what's going on. And it's it's about the other person. So, uh, yeah, I don't know. There, There's something about that where I care so little about what somebody else is feeling. I'm just assuming everybody feels the way I do. So the idea of writing a song like that is not appealing to me anymore. Oh, here it is. Here it is. I found it. I found it. I found it. This has got to die. I said, this has got to stop. Does it? Does it have to stop? No, it, it, it has to stop, but it doesn't. It goes on. <laughs> this has got to lie down. His voice is always like trembling. With someone else on top. That's a pretty good line. That's a pretty good line. Well, you can keep me pinned. It's just not music for grown men. It's not music for men who... No, it's moved. music for boys. It's music for boys. It's mu- and girls. Yeah, and that's cool. Music for boys and girls. That is cool. There's a time and There's a, a time for it. for it. Yeah, it's just we're not... We're not his target audience. And by the way, we got to skedaddle out of here. Uh, maybe we'll talk more about it in the Secret Weekly. Maybe not. Thank you for listening. We love you guys out there. Hope you're well. Hope you're safe and your families are safe. And we'll see you on the flippity floppity. Bye. Bye. (laughs) 